friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We're live. Pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. On a Sunday. On a Sunday. I really want to put the Jurassic Park music there. <laughs> You should. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. You really should. I uh, nice. I did a toy ride today. It was super fun. We rode our horses. There was probably like 50 horses. And we rode mm. around town, like where I live in the city. Yeah. And collected like toys for the SOS on the way. Mm-hmm. And it was super fun. Cute. My work did a toy drive today. And that's also why I ended up having to go into work today because we were short-staffed because we were like crazy busy because it was like an anniversary event yeah. so we decided to make it like a bit of a toy drive at the same time good and idea. yeah just try and get some toys together for kids and I think if anyone out there sends us a picture of either like a screenshot of a donation they make for the holidays or a toy they buy for a toy drive or something if you send us a picture of it show us you giving back and we'll send you some stickers heck yeah Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm all about giving back this time of year. I don't even really think we're doing gifts this year. I have some of the little, like, gifts for families that you can take off of trees at, like, local businesses. And, like, I don't know. We just have bought some, like, big things. We just went on our trip. So don't think we're going to do a lot of actual presents this year. I have family that's, like, not even here. Half of my people are away. So it's, like... Just doing a lot of giving back, especially this time of year and this, I feel like these last couple of years have been tough on everyone. Actually, I know we were talking about it and you were saying that you always do um, gifts for seniors, which I think is so, so, so adorable and amazing. And I think that sometimes seniors get forgotten about. It's always, you know, a lot about families and a lot about kids, which is so, so important. But there are a lot of seniors that... Are struggling or maybe don't have anybody to want well, a lot of seniors in homes mm-hmm. so like even if you don't have a lot of money and you can afford a little box of cards go to your local care home and ask for a list of first names and see if you can write cards to them yeah yeah we actually stopped at a couple senior centers today and it was so cute all the residents were sitting outside and like waving at the horses and they were so yeah. excited we were there and um yeah it was oh. it was a really cool experience it was my first time so it was fun So where I work, there's like a little restaurant as well. And we have more than once had like the the Qualicum seniors groups come all the way down to just like hang out where I work. That's so nice. So cute. Yes. Yeah, they do. Qualicum has a senior center and they they do lots of fun stuff Big community for seniors. Very large community for seniors. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's where I was personally born and raised. And um you know, probably will retire. Probably will die in Qualicum. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You kind of just... Qualigo. You kind of just end up back there if you are from there. I don't... Maybe other people don't feel I that way. I think that's small towns. I just feel like you just kind of end up going back. Yeah, I think anyone who grew up in a small town can see the value in leaving, experiencing mm-hmm. the busier life, and then going back and just appreciating your small town. Yep. Because that's what we've both done over time, and I think we can both appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I like my slower lifestyle now, even though it still seems like it goes 7,000 miles an hour. I was going to say, quote, slower. 
it's not slower, yeah. but you know, it feels slower when you're not in a big city. So that's good. Yeah. Well, I know last week we said we were going to do a special episode today. Um, so I guess we might as well just say, if you don't follow me on my personal account, you don't already know, I got engaged in Hawaii, um, at Jurassic Park, which if you know me, um, you know that that is a dream come true for probably only me, but it was the best day literally of my life because I have been waiting to go to Kualoa Ranch for probably six years. Whenever I discovered that that's where they filmed um Jurassic Park and Jurassic World uh, I was like yep I'm going there and then I planned trips and they fell through and they didn't work out and so we went it was kind of like the second leg of our trip because we did two islands we went to Maui um for anybody who's like oh, you went to Maui yes we went to Maui we did not go anywhere near Lahaina or the west side of Maui Maui is very much <laughs> open as long as you do not go near the west side um do not go over there to try and, like, see the fires. Very no. disrespectful. Don't do it. But everywhere else is open, and they're very much like, please come. Please, you know, we need tourism. We Yeah, the tourism industry is what keeps them afloat. Yeah, so they, of course, as long as you're, like, respectful and everything, they are very, very welcoming of tourism. Um, so we were on Maui for about five days, and then we were over on Oahu, um, and that's where Kualoa Ranch is. And so we went there, and it was the very last stop on our little tour that we did with the ATVs um, that Brandon proposed. Were those like the little dune buggy type ones with the roll cages, like very? Yeah, they're more or like they side like by true like quads. They're more like side by sides. Yeah, they call okay. them UTVs. Oh, yeah, but they're more like a side by side. They have like a front and a back seat so you could have like sat a couple people in the back but yeah okay. like the whole cage and everything they're open um, I can post a picture and is this like where the waterfall is the waterfall like you know the opening scene where the helicopter comes in and there's like the waterfall yes is that where the waterfall okay yeah yeah okay so where he actually proposed um if you know Jurassic World well um where the helipads are there is, if you're looking, there's a couple scenes that the helipads are in the first Jurassic World, but at the very end of the movie, it's really, really, you can see it well when the T-Rex, like, goes up to the top to go on the helipads, and then she's like, roar! Um, mm-hmm. You can see the dirt road that runs behind the helipads, and that's literally where we were. On that dirt road. I may road. need to go watch Jurassic World immediately when we hang up. I have watched it twice since we got since engaged. Being, you know? Less than two weeks ago. I respect that. And I, every time I see the helipad, I'm like, I got engaged there. Ah! Anyway, I'm it was. literally looking it up in my photo. It's funny because obviously Hollywood, they do a lot of cutting and pasting and stuff. And so the view from the helipads looking the other direction in the movie is like, Jurassic World so like you can see Mm. the main buildings and everything in real life it is the ocean like it's a view of the ocean and so they do a lot of like cutting and pasting so like it the reverse CGI right yeah the view doesn't look the same but like you can if you google the Jurassic World helipad you can actually see like when they built it you can see the ocean background oh I am and then as we speak when you watch the movie obviously it's all (laughs) but it was really cool it was really cool um Jurassic Valley. Okay, you're like, okay, you're like, yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. You're like so chill about it. No, this was a. No, it was, it was amazing. Um, 
So yeah, we got to see some of the sets from Jurassic World 2 as well, which I just watched last night. Um, so like that big bunker that Claire mm-hmm. and Franklin go in, we like went into that bunker. And it's so weird because it's like literally made of like wood and styrofoam, but it looks like metal. Anyways, um, yeah, it was super cool. That is so weird though. But also like Kualoa Ranch, they would want me to tell you that it's a lot more than just a Jurassic Park film location. It's a massive nature sanctuary. It's been in the same family for like generations. It's like over 4,000 acres of protected land. They have a like working cattle farm there. They have pigs there. They filmed a lot of other movies there that you guys will know like um, I have pictures from, like, the set of King Kong. Um, there's just been a lot of other stuff that's there. And it's not just Jurassic Park. But, like, for me, it was yeah. Jurassic Park. <laughs> Fair. But it was cool. I love that you were wearing your Jurassic Park shirt. Well, yeah. No, I know. But it was just so fitting. I know. <laughs> and then, of course, when I posted the video, because shout out to the tour guide, um, I asked Brandon after. He did not tell anybody that he was going to do that. So we were just like, oh, do you mind taking a photo of us? Went to take a photo. And then, of course, I turn around and he's on one knee. And the way this tour guide was so quick to flip to video and like. I'm sure he knows how to read the cues. Like he probably saw you two walking in at the beginning and was like. This man is sweaty and nervous. He's going to try and pull some shit off on this. I'm going to be ready to help a brother out. I mean, I also just think that they're very well versed in, like, they take a lot of pictures of tourists. So they just, they know their way around an iPhone camera, you know? Um, Yeah. But, like, shout out to our tour guide because you got the cutest video and I don't think he prompted you. So. Unless it was, like, right as he was about to do it. Like, he was like, can you take our picture? And then, like showed the ring quick and was like I don't think so that's not I Brandon's not like that so aside from the fact that you knew you were going on this trip and you were like oh wouldn't that be amazing if he did propose there mm-hmm. did you have any idea well okay so full Brandon's di- pretty cool full, no so so no I didn't um okay full disclosure we went to a jeweler back in like January and I was sized yes. and we talked about like what I wanted Um, I think very small, by the way, tiny (laughs) fingers. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we talked about kind of like what I wanted because I had a very specific vision. And like, I don't know, I think that's normal when you're kind of at that place in your life and um, whatever. So I was like, you know, hopeful or thinking it might happen on the trip because like if not (laughs) on this beautiful Hawaii vacation, then like when? Then when? Um, But no, Brandon is he can sell it. He, I had no idea. Dang, boy. Yeah. I didn't see any, like, I didn't, I wasn't looking for it, say, on, like, when you go through the airport scanners. Like, I, I'm sure I could have seen a ring in his backpack on the airport security scanner, but I wasn't looking for it because yeah. I went into the trip being, like, I don't want to be every five minutes being, like, is he going to propose now? I just think that's not a way to enjoy your vacation. Well, and you don't, like hate surprises like that if it's coming from someone that really loves you and you know it's going to be amazing whereas like I don't like surprises no matter what oh yeah see I was just like whatever he does it is going to be awesome whatever so no I didn't know and because he waited till the very end of the 
tour. It was our very last stop on the tour. At that point, I like was. You're like, oh, if it hasn't happened now, it's probably not going to happen. No, like it was <laughs> not on my radar at all at that point. So had you booked that ATV thing before going? Long before. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he could have planned. So he knew. I'm sure he okay. did. Because I think I've made jokes oh, I know. in the past where I'm like, wouldn't it be so funny if you proposed to me under a T-Rex? Like, I, I've made jokes. <laughs> and he's like, ding, light bulb. <laughs> but no. <laughs> Can't be under a T-Rex, it but was... it could be under where a T-Rex stood. <laughs> he did a really good job. Kudos to Brandon. He did. And that video is adorable. And I love the part where you were like, where we're texting after and you're like, he couldn't have told me to take off the helmet. Yeah. <laughs> That was one of my funniest, like, moments throughout the entire thing. We're, like, so excited and talking. And then you're, like, God, but he couldn't have told me to take off the helmet. Listen, the moment was so perfect, I don't care. But it's funny because it had been kind of raining on and off that day. And um, it was also really windy and my hair was down. And so at that point, like, I had just assumed my helmet as a part of my outfit. Like, I was, like, it's a cute fit. I I'm, think it was cute. I'm on an ATV. I'm not taking this shit off because my hair is going to go everywhere every single time I have to put it back on. Because you have a couple stops along the way. You see little yeah. film locations, whatever. So, like, I had assumed the helmet as a part of my fit for the well, day. Well, it's cuter than having poofy hair. At least people know you're on an ATV this way in the pictures. Yeah, so afterwards he was like, yeah, I was kind of hoping you would take off your helmet. And I was like, it, well, that <laughs> thing wasn't coming off at that point. It was glued to my head. So, no, it's it's cute. Uh, it couldn't have gone better. No, I actually love more that you're wearing the helmet because it does show that you're on this, like, tour and these ATVs and it adds to the story. Like, it tells us more of the story than just you standing there with, funny hair from the wind and the rain yeah but yeah it was it was fun there was it was like you know not too many people just the people on our tour it's not like we're in front of this like massive crowd but at the same time it's very unlike brandon to do something like that in front of people so i think he was really nervous like he basically whispered yeah. to me will you marry me <laughs> like, i just wanted to know <laughs> yeah so anyways yeah you definitely can't hear no I could hear, but he was... Him or you say anything. Also, are you not wearing a ring right now? No. Oh. I just went to feed the horses, so I, and I had a shower, so it's not on my hand. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that is that was the kind of like the highlight, if you will, of my trip. We did tons of other things in Hawaii. <laughs> if you but, will. <laughs> but that was, that was a big moment. And then, yeah, no, I'm not wearing my ring, but I love it. And now I'm getting my nails done regularly because every time someone's like, can I see your ring? I like want to have the pretty nails. So that'll be going on for at least a month. Yeah, I am going to get my nails done. I think this coming week I'm going to budget it in because I have Christmas parties coming up. Mm -hmm. I have Christmas coming up. And if there's one time a year where I do my nails, it's December 1st to January 31st because that covers all the Christmas events, all the New Year's events and my birthday. There you go. And it's like my little holiday treat to myself. Yeah. Now... <laughs> Katie, everybody knows Katie got engaged over a year ago now. Yeah, over a year ago. September, now. but I know a year. I don't think you ever told us your engagement story. So now that I told you my engagement story, are you gonna tell us yours? Yeah, I was thinking back, and I thought I did tell it, so I kind of thought I got away scot free on this in a way. Oh, I don't know. That but that's fine. I'll tell you again. You it's not too crazy. No, it's not too long and involved. I mean, like it's not that it's not crazy. It's very sweet. I was going to say, it's very cute, though. Um, so for our long-distance relationship, so part of it was we did a lot of video calls. 
And for anyone who knows me knows that I fall asleep a lot. I nap a lot. She does. So sometimes when I would fall asleep on video calls, I would wake up to a little post-it note on his video call saying what he had done or where he had gone. That's adorable. Like he would sometimes leave his phone at home to go to the grocery store so that it didn't hang up on me. So when I woke up, I would just see his little note being like, went to get groceries. Sorry, in Quebec it says, gone to do a grocery. Oh. It's a grocery. A grocery. I get a lot more than so, a single grocery when I go out, but whatever. Same. I need just a grocery to eat in the car on the way home <laughs> from the grocery store Correct. to my house. Yes. <laughs> but like a lot of the times they'd also be like very sweet notes because sometimes we'd leave video calls going while we'd be like working or doing things around the house, just talking in the abyss. And so when we eventually were together visiting he would hide post-it notes all around my house so I would find them in my day-to-day activities and they were just like really sweet things or funny things. And so I still have them all to this day. Adorable. And yeah, so we went to a bed and breakfast and unlike you, I was pretty sure I knew it was happening. Oh, really? You knew? Oh my God, he was a nervous wreck. Yeah, so see, I... I was pretty sure it was going to happen on the trip, but again, I didn't want to, like, be wondering when every single time, so I kind of just, like, put it in a box and moved it, if that makes sense. Okay. I wish I could have, but it was, like, there was just, like, little things that were happening that just seemed, like, a little bit too... Okay. Maybe, like, planned, but in such a cute way. Like, I loved it. yeah. Like, you could tell, like, maybe he had talked to the guy at the hotel desk before, even though they were like, oh, it's nice to meet you. So something like that. Um, And then, so I went and got ready, and it was like this old, old bed and breakfast that was like kind of haunted, because that's my thing. So to me, that was like a romantic gesture. (laughs) (laughs) Take me to a haunted place. (laughs) Pretty much. We went to this like super old bed and breakfast with this like, so I'm having this like huge bathtub to myself get out we're about to go to this nice dinner I go to this like beautiful big bed and I pick up my coat and there was a post-it note under it that said will you marry me and then when I turned around he was behind me on one knee oh my gosh cute yeah it was very sweet and that was like yeah over a year ago now feels like yesterday yeah see that was very planned I feel like Brendan was like if I find the right moment, it'll work out. If I find the right moment on this little tour, I'm gonna do it, and if not, I'll just do it somewhere else. Like I don't think. If not, I'll do it at the airport so I can say I did in Hawaii. He also <laughs> is just if, if you know Brandon, like he can sell it. Well, he's a salesman. He's, I would hope so. He's a salesman, but he's not like a sleazy salesman though. So I don't like saying no that because he's very like put together um, and it's professional. Like... But he is very calm, cool, and collected. So like, I don't even know that he told anybody. Other than your dad. Yeah. I mean, he might have let I bet it, your brother knew. He may have let it... Because I found out later that he's had this ring since April. So was he just taking you... Oh, wait. No, you had already been to the jeweler. Okay. April. This man can't even keep it, a Christmas present a secret. Yeah, but you know what? He probably knows that, like, maybe to him this is just more important than even you thought it was. Maybe. So. 
Well, that's it. That is also our... that boy freaking loves you. So I think to him, he knew this was important overall. Yeah, he, I mean, he may have let it slip that he had the ring to like a couple people when he was drunk or something, but I don't think anybody knew. Um, no, and having the ring and having a plan to propose are two very different things. That's very true. Anyways, that's our engagement stories. We are now both fiancés and we get to plan weddings together, <laughs> which is super fun. I know I'm actually so glad I postponed a year because I feel like now this was like meant to happen. Yes. It's going to so be So I am very so fun. excited. Because even if... And I feel like... What? <laughs> I was going to say, we've both been in so many weddings in the last, like, five years that I think collectively we have a fairly good idea of, like, what to do and what works and what doesn't to kind of have a baseline of where to start. So I'm excited. what we want. Yeah. Because even if I don't have, like, the traditional wedding, um, I'll still do something where people are involved in some way. And uh, it's just going to be fun to do it together. I'm looking forward to it. We got little fiancé buddies. Loves it. My cousin actually, shout out to my cousin for doing something unconventional. Him and his fiance just took a helicopter to the top of a snow-capped mountain mm-hmm. and got married just the two of them. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and the pictures are beautiful. Sandy would never allow that, but, you know, that's fine. Oh, I have floated the idea of eloping plus our parents and best friends. Mm. So just like a small group. Um, that way we could even maybe just pay for everyone. Yeah. Kind of thing. And that got poo-pooed on. Brandon keeps asking me if we can go to the little chapel in Vegas. And I keep saying no. Like like our friend just did? Yes. Like our friend just did. Literally. Which the... was adorable. Well, like... because we have other friends that went to the exact same place and have like very similar photos. And he's obsessed with mm. them. So, yeah. I think it would be fun to have a honeymoon start in Vegas yes. and go do the wedding again, just the two of you there, yes. and just start your kind of, like, party little trip together for your honeymoon on, like, that kind of high. Yeah. But I know that also I could not get away from a wedding without my parents. And not only that, I am a traditionalist when it comes to, like, I need my daddy there. Mm. I need him to walk me down the aisle. That is important to me, sure. and it is something I have looked forward to since I was, like this big and i don't know why but it's one thing i'm really hung up on that's fair even more so since losing my grandpa yeah that's fair and there was about three years where i didn't even want to get married if he wasn't going to be there yeah i feel that because i lost my grandpa in june of this year and i kind of said the same thing to my mom i was like i don't even really want to get married like i don't even want to do it anymore because that's like not how i pictured it and she was like well what about the rest of us like we're still here. Stop being so selfish, we're Olivia. We're still here, girl. So anyway, we'll see. I don't have like concrete. Sandy plans, has a but... point, and that's a good way to look at it. Like, yeah, we can't just focus on who we've lost. We have to focus on who we still have. Yeah, and that's important. Yeah, but with uh, I think that's our story. That is, and with that, I actually did a case out of Honolulu today. Um, so we ended our trip in Honolulu. We had one night in Honolulu. We did like a boat cruise with the fireworks. Shout out to Hawaii Ocean Project. If you happen to go to Honolulu, um, Hawaii Ocean Project is a boat that was originally actually operating their cruises, their dinner cruises out of Lahaina. And the boat was the very last boat to make it out of the Lahaina fires. 
Um, they are restarting their business in Honolulu. And we actually had the incredible opportunity to go on a dinner cruise to watch the fireworks for free because it was their first night restarting up. They were looking for reviews and just people to kind of like help them get the word out. Um, and we had an amazing time. So if you happen to be there, check out the Hawaii Ocean Project and their dinner cruises. The fireworks are every Friday in front of the Hilton. How bougie. But um, bougie. so when we were talking about. Kudos to them though. Hey, like way to get word of mouth and business. Like just get out there and hey, what are you up to? Do you want to try this for free? Come out with us. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, it, good for them. It was really fun. And so there was lots like, you know, a good amount of people showed up. And actually, it's funny originally because there was just kind of somebody that was down by the water asking people if they were interested in a free dinner cruise. And it's really normal to just say no to things like that, especially because you're like, maybe think that they're especially you and I as well a scam whatever yeah so Brandon of course we were walking by and the lady asked and Brandon was like no thanks and I looked at him and I was like what like go ask her for more information yeah. like we just got engaged I'm in my like yes man era like let's go yeah let's do it like I'm in my yes girl moment yeah like how are we ever gonna do fun things that we just say no to everything so we ended up um, looking into it and it was super fun so Anyways, I, I decided that. to write a case from Honolulu, um, and I'll switch the the energy of the episode because it's very not happy. Okay. You know. So we're turning it to somber. We are. Yeah, I just want to be respectful of the content that we're about to talk about because it's yeah. it was super tragic for Hawaii. Um, this is a case from 1999, and it is the worst mass shooting in the history of Hawaii. So, um, we'll just keep that in mind as we move through the episode, mm -hmm. but yeah, we, we started on a high note and now we're going to move into the, you know, regular scheduled programming. Yeah. So with that in mind on November the 2nd, 1999, a Xerox technician in Honolulu, Hawaii killed his supervisor and six other co-workers in what is considered to be the worst mass shooting in the history of the state of Hawaii. He fired an, at an eighth person who managed to get away unharmed. The victims of this shooting were 33-year-old Jason Balatico, 41-year-old Ford Kanahira, 50-year-old Ronald Kataoka, 54-year-old Ronald Kawame, 58-year-old Melvin Lee, 46-year-old Peter Mark, and 36-year-old John Sakamoto. A little bit about the victims before we get into kind of the story. Melvin Lee was um, the boss of the shooter. He had worked at Xerox for 32 years. He had been married for 18 years, and he had two sons and a daughter. Wow, that's a long tenure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 32 years. I mean, you're going on retirement at that point, which is just it's so sad. I feel like seven years at one company was a long time. So Yeah. Kudos to him for sticking it out. I just talked to somebody at my work recently who's going on like 33 years and is going to retire next year as well. So I'm like, oh, I got a long way wow. to go, man. A long mm -hmm. way. Long, long, long. Uh, Ford Kanahira had also been married for 18 years. He married his high school sweetheart and they had a son together. He had been employed by Xerox for 19 years. 
Ronald Kataoka, who went by Ronnie, learned his electronic trade at Honolulu Community College and also married his high school sweetheart, Lynn. The two had been married for 25 years, uh, and his wife, Lynn, also worked for the Xerox company, and Ronnie had been employed with Xerox for 27 years. He and Lynn, yeah, he and Lynn had a daughter. Ronnie was also part of the National Guard when Hawaii was called to uh, serve in Vietnam, and so he was a Vietnam veteran. Peter Mark had been married for 16 years, and he and his wife had two sons. He worked at Xerox for 19 years, and Peter loved everything to do with the ocean and was buried at sea within sight of what's known as Diamond Head. John Sakamoto had been married for seven years with a son and a daughter. He had been employed by the company for 10 years. John was an avid fisherman, and before joining Xerox, he actually made his own boat and spent every weekend and every vacation that he ever got fishing. Um, John had been fishing less since having children, but he was known as someone who was actually able to supplement his income and make a living because of his effectiveness as a fisherman. Wow. And there is very lucrative fishing in Hawaii, (laughs) similar to where we live, Vancouver Island. It's very, very fish forward, if you will. Um, A lot of places serve like the local fish, mahi-mahi and things like that. So it's actually, Hawaii is actually very similar to where we live. It's just tropical. That's kind of what Brandon said too. Like it's very similar in terms of you're surrounded by mountains and the ocean and a lot of seafood and like local fish and things like that. I think where we have the Okanagan, they have tropical fruit, but they're still versions of one another in some way Mm -hmm. or very similar in a lot of ways. Um, So yeah. And actually it was really interesting. It's really interesting being elsewhere, somewhere that you're vacationing and people say, oh, where are you from? And you say Vancouver Island and they say, oh, my God, you're so lucky. It's so beautiful there. I'm so jealous. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, I'm so jealous. I want to live around here. where you I are. Live here. So it's just really like I always I obviously know perspective that Vancouver Island is stunning and one of the most beautiful places literally on Earth. Um, but being from here and growing up here, sometimes I think you take that for granted a little bit and. Yeah, without a doubt. The amount of times that locals and people who lived there were like, oh my god, I'm so jealous was astonishing. Yeah, I really noticed that driving uh, across the country mm-hmm. because there's also a lot of provinces that don't have what we have to look at and you just like get back and you're like, oh, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. So, love it. Jason Balatico had been married for 10 years, and he too had a son and a daughter. Uh, Jason was known as someone that was fast and quick at everything he did. Um, He was also a prankster, and one of his favorite tricks was to super glue a penny to the floor and then just watch as somebody tried to pick up the penny for good luck. Uh Oh, that sucks. And actually for Jason, (laughs) November 2nd, 1999, that very day marked his eighth year with Xerox. Okay. The seventh victim, Ron Kawame, was nicknamed the politician and loved karaoke. He had previously been married and had a son. He was employed by Xerox for 30 years and he loved socializing and people. And karaoke. 
Why does that not surprise me that he likes socializing and people and karaoke? Yeah, I mean, I feel like they go hand in hand. They all go hand in hand. The shooter's name was Byron Koji Yuasugi, and he was born in Honolulu, Oahu, Hawaii in 1959 and grew up in the Nuanu neighborhood. He attended Roosevelt High School, and during this time, he was a member of the school's Army JROTC chapter and the school's rifle team. Byron's... Is that like cadets? I think so, yeah. Okay, because I've always kind of... I've heard those acronyms before, but I've never been super familiar, and I think it's kind of like the cadets. It's the Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps. So, yeah, I think it's very similar to the cadets. It's a federal program sponsored by the U.S. Armed Forces. Okay. Um, so it kind of, like, thought. bridges them into joining the military, which is exactly what the cadets is. Okay. Yeah. Byron's classmates at school remember him as a quiet student who never got in trouble. According to his brother, Dennis, uh, Byron crashed their father's car driving home from a graduation party in 1977, right after high school, and hit his head on the windshield. Oh, no. Dennis claims that after this, Byron was never the same. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what Dennis says. His father, however, says that Byron was completely normal until he started his job at Xerox in 1984. He said by 1988, his son was complaining that he had a poking sensation in his head. And I will preface this episode by saying that um, there is definitely some mental health things happening here, possible schizophrenia, um, though not really diagnosed or looked into after the incident. Um, There's definitely mental health stuff happening here that was not really as taken seriously as maybe it should have been at the time. Like it should be kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Among some of Byron's hobbies included raising and breeding goldfish and koi, which he would sell to local pet stores. Um, He also had an extensive collection of firearms. At the time of these murders, Byron had approximately had 25 guns registered to his name dating back to 1982. And at the time, he had 17 registered and in his, his possession. So the police took 11 handguns, five rifles, and two shotguns from him after this incident actively registered to his name yeah that's substantial it's a lot yeah in 1993 byron was ordered to undergo psychiatric evaluation and anger management courses after he kicked in and damaged an elevator door at the workplace he was arrested for third degree criminal property damage at that time wow yeah i guess Mm -hmm. Former co-workers of his also told Dr. Michael Wellner, who's the chairman of the forensic panel and the forensic psychiatrist who interviewed Byron prior to his trial, that as early as 1995, he was openly talking about carrying out a mass shooting at the workplace if he were to be fired. He constantly complained that his co-workers were engaged in, like, 
harassing him, backstabbing behaviors. He thought people were spreading rumors about him, that people were, like, trying to do things to get him fired. He was extreme paranoid. He was very paranoid. Okay. Um, and, I mean, it was reported by some co-workers that because of this behavior, like, people were kind of ostracizing him. He felt really isolated and withdrawn. Um, but a lot of these claims were, like... Sure, people weren't engaging with him a ton, but nobody was, like, necessarily out to get him. People think whatever is, quote, unquote, weird to them is too different to engage with, and they treat differently, which is not fair, but we see it every day. So I'm sure, yes, he was probably ostracized. Mm -hmm. But I think think that that behavior kind of escalated his feelings of paranoia and thinking people were out to get him and trying to get him fired and things like that so i mean this behavior was going on in the years leading up to this incident well i think the paranoia too is something that you create you manifest it in your head and the more you think it the more it is so i think it's a double-edged sword with this one and we also have to remember that this is the early 90s and mental health was not viewed the same as it is now um precautions weren't taken like they are now you know, we didn't have the resources like we do today. And I mean, even today, mental health resources are severely lacking. But like the knowledge and the conversation behind mental health is a lot greater than it ever was in the early 90s. I feel like there's at least an awareness of what needs to be done. Unfortunately, we're not at a point where it's being done. Mm-hmm. But I think there's enough people out there that have the right idea to get us in the right direction. We just need those things to be implemented. Yeah. Whereas I feel like Years ago, there just wasn't the knowledge Correct. needed. Yeah. In 1996, Byron married a woman and had a daughter with her. Um, he was eventually transferred to another work group where he began making more accusations of harassment and product tampering by fellow repairmen. What? None of these accusations were ever found to be true. Yeah, so he was a, like, service technician he repaired the xerox machines and so basically he was like transferred to another work group and then started like saying that people were tampering with his machines that he was repairing again just he thought people were out to get him and wanted him to be fine yeah again it's that extreme paranoia and seeing that like fear yeah which is just sad yeah So, in 1999, in the period leading up to this incident, the management at Xerox had introduced a new type of copier and were increasingly committed to phasing out the copier that uh, Byron serviced. Sorry. So, they wanted him to learn the new machine. They weren't trying to get rid of his job. They just wanted him to learn this new machine i mean it's the same like you know lots of jobs are like that new tech comes along we need to learn it and adapt remember when we had to learn a whole new software and how annoyed we were i sure do we get it Um, he was very, very resistant to learning the replacement machine. He didn't think he would be able to keep up with it. Um, he just, again, thought that this was another layer of trying to get him fired. Well, yeah, he probably thinks that they're trying to squeeze him out. 100%. So his manager insisted on November 1st, 1999, that he was going to start his training for the new machine the next day. Oh, wow. And I can, I think you and I can both speak to as having, you know, our own mental health struggles. Having stuff sprung on you can be one of the worst feelings in the world. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that this was a long time coming and they had just kind of allowed him to get away with not learning the new machine. And then they were just eventually like, look, bro, you're, you're going to learn it. Like, you got it. starting your training tomorrow. We don't have, like, this machine's not going to be here anymore. Yeah, like, we're trying to keep your job, buddy, not get ready. Yeah. So, November 2nd, 1999 started out like any other day for the employees at the Xerox warehouse located at 1200 North Nimitz Highway in Honolulu, Hawaii. Shortly after 8 a.m., Byron Uesugi arrived with a loaded 9mm semi-automatic pistol and two extra mags of ammunition. Eleven people were present in the building at that time. After briefly chatting with an employee on the first floor, Byron then went to the offices on the second floor where he shot and killed employees 54-year-old Ron Kawame in the head and 33-year-old Jason Balatico five times in a tech rep computer office. However, he spared the employee whose name is Randall Shin. Can I just say, too, it always shocks me when I hear that they'll walk into a building, whoever this shooter or culprit is in these situations, and have a normal conversation with one person. Mm-hmm. and Or sometimes go about half their day normally, and people were like, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that, those situations, like, that part really scares me. Yeah. So, yeah. it's good to keep in mind, too, that because there's going to be you know, an insanity defense that is inevitably going to come, that there are very conscious choices being made here. Right? He's making a very conscious choice to... Load those extra magazines, take them into the building. Well, and talk to someone. To talk to someone, spare somebody else's life. and choose who is... Correct. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, there's multiple choices and layers of choices happening here. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. He then enters a conference room where a team meeting is taking place, and after allegedly waving goodbye at the employees inside this meeting, he continued shooting all five people present at the meeting, including his supervisor, who is 58-year-old Melvin Lee, four times. Wow. 41-year-old Ford Kanahira was shot five times. 50-year-old Ronald Kataoka was shot four times, and 46-year-old Peter Mark was shot twice. 36-year-old John Sakamoto was shot four times. All of the... And these are, like, quite excessive. Yes. All of the victims were fatally shot on scene. Um, and it's important to note that he used high-velocity hollow-point bullets, which cause higher tissue damage upon entering the body. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, and this isn't sound gruesome, but because it's hollow too, the metal kind of peels back and becomes sharp mm-hmm. too, so it creates more yeah. damage from spinning. Ugh. After trying again, another conscious choice. Again, yeah, another conscious choice. After trying to kill 55-year-old Steve Matsuda, at a stairway and missing. Byron Yuyasugi fled the scene in a company van and managed to elude police who were arriving at the same time after someone inside had called 911 to report the shooting. So he managed to get away in this van without being caught, really, because he was just driving away. Yeah, if you can keep your cool and just 
drive normally, there is a good chance police will just pass you. They don't know it's you yet. Well, and they don't know what's going on, right? They just get this yeah. phone call. They arrive on the scene. They Shots know that there's victims somewhere. inside. That's kind of yeah. their first priority. So, yeah. When you're taking it slow, you're not going to run into somewhere with a gunman. Yeah. They're going to assess properly. Yeah. Well, and I believe what I read was that there was three officers that responded to this. And this mm-hmm. incident really changed the way that Hawaii State Police respond to these sort of incidents. So there's way more protocol um, in place for like SWAT teams and things like that now. But at the time, there's just nothing like this had ever happened here. Yeah, things have to happen for people to learn, unfortunately, and sometimes those are horrific things. Yeah. Yeah. Byron was on the run for approximately two hours before he was spotted in the van by a jogger in the upscale neighborhood called Makihi Heights at around 9.45 a.m. What a cute neighborhood name. <laughs> His, so his photo had been like published in the local news, obviously, once they realized he was on the run. So this jogger had recognized them, him and notified police who arrived and took up a half mile wide area around the van to prevent any casualties from a possible shootout. And a standoff began with uh, Yusuke. Okay. This van, where so where he ended up being parked was also located near what's called the Hawaii Nature Center in Makiki in the mountains, which is like above downtown Honolulu. And adding to the pressure or the tension of this standoff with police, the Hawaii Nature Center that morning was host to 35 local school children who ended up being trapped inside the entire time without food or water. That sounds like something from a movie. I know. Right? It's crazy. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. That's so terrifying. Yeah. So the standoff lasted for five hours. Uh, Byron sat in the Xerox van where he basically just was hanging out with his gun, reading magazines. He was smoking cigarettes. Um. A police officer who was part of the standoff at the time, her name was Cheryl Sunya. She was sent in to negotiate with Byron. She ended up like chucking a phone in his direction from the bushes around his van and he like picked it up and she tried to reason with him on the phone. Uh, when this was. I'm the- shocked no one tried to shoot him when he got out to get the phone. Yeah, I think they were trying to make this peaceful. And I appreciate that and I respect that. I just, I'm surprised no one did. Again, this isn't just like your average American state. Mm -hmm. Sure. Police ended up enlisting the help of Byron's brother, Dennis, to help end the standoff. So they got him on the phone to talk with him. This ended up being successful and Byron surrendered at approximately 3 p.m. Hawaii Standard Time. After he was arrested, Byron pleaded guilty by reason of insanity, claiming he had felt like an outcast at work and that he was scared his co-workers were conspiring to have him fired. Uh, at the time, Byron had been working with the company for 15 years. He was trying... And so has there ever been any history of him making weird complaints at work or having, like, 
too unusual a behavior for someone to just be like, oh, that's just him. Well, yeah, I mean, we kind of talked about that. He felt like he was ostracized and he was paranoid. Oh, no, I meant like, did he have any like write-ups or anything or anything on the record at work? I believe so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there was definitely like a history of him constantly complaining that people were out to get him. And remember, he okay. he was saying that people were harassing him and... Yeah, that was all very dumb. Yeah, I just wasn't sure how many years it went back, considering he had worked there for so long. I would just be curious, but uh, I may not know that. Based on my research, I would say at least within the, the four to five years leading up. Like, it's okay. kind of started so long in like, enough to create a trend or see it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because he, he had the incident with the having to go to anger management and see a psychiatrist in, like, 1993. Yeah, so we at least have that window. Yeah. Okay. He was charged with one count of murder in the first degree, which was count one, seven counts of murder in the second degree, which were counts two to eight, and one count of attempted murder in the second degree, which was considered count nine. Um, prior to the end of trial, counts two to eight, so the seven counts second of degree. second degree murder were merged into count one, and it ended up being all first degree murder charges. In his interview with Dr. Michael Wellner to examine the insanity defense, Byron said he believed that if he refused to take the training that day, management would fire him. He told Dr. Wellner, quote, I decided to give them a reason to fire me. Okay. The month-long trial against Byron Uyasugi began on May 15th, 2000. Prosecuting attorney of Honolulu, Peter Carlisle, and deputy prosecuting attorneys Christopher Van Marder and Kevin Takata represented the state of Hawaii, while Byron was represented by criminal defense attorneys Gerald Fonseca and Rodney Ching. Byron's defense team maintained his insanity defense with Dr. Park Dietz and Dr. Daryl Matthews testifying that the defendant was insane, citing delusions about how others were tampering with his fish. The lead prosecution expert witness, Dr. Harold Hall, testified that Byron fulfilled the criteria for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, but he did not meet the criteria for either insanity or extreme emotion or mental disturbance as for a defense. Which I tend to agree with. Yeah, and a lot of this is going to come back to what we were talking about earlier, which is those very conscious choices that were made. Yeah, and they were back-to-back -back in succession. Yeah. Dr. Michael Wellner testified for the prosecution that although Byron had, in his opinion, schizophrenia... He carried out the shooting because he was angry that he would be fired for insubordination and that his own account of concealment before the crime demonstrated that he knew what he was doing was wrong. Mm -hmm. so he was mm -hmm. very obviously concealing the weapon when he walked into the building that day. Yeah, he knew if someone saw it, there would either be questions or he would be stopped and be in trouble. Yeah. So he hit it and he had a normal interaction with that person yeah. to get it through the door. Yep. Yeah again i just i cannot wrap my head around yeah his defense attorneys however said he was deluded and believed that his co-workers were plotting against him defense attorney gerald finesca said quote uh 
sorry. His defense attorney, Gerald Finesca, said, quote, there had been years and years and years of torment, of conspiracy, of sabotage, and although they may not in actuality have happened, he believed that. These were fixed, firm, unshakable beliefs. Which, like... That's scary. Yeah. The prosecution said, however, that Yusugi was deliberate in what he did, saying, quote, he had been thinking about killing these people for years and years, and the problem, one of the problems he confronted was basically they're never in the same location at the same time. That morning, everybody that he wanted to kill was going to be in the same room um, because there was like a, there was a, a meeting that morning, then that's why he was able to target most of his victims. Prosecutor Peter Carlisle said that Yasugi did not meet the definition of legal insanity because he exercised self-control during the shootings from planning to attacking and then escaping. He even purposely chose not to shoot one co-worker who was in the same general area as the other victims. On June 13, 2000, the jury rejected the insanity defense and found Byron Yusugi guilty on all counts of first-degree murder and the count of attempted murder. He showed no emotion when the verdict was read. On August 8, 2000, Judge Mary N. Milks sentenced Yusugi to life without the possibility of parole and life with the possibility of parole for the attempted murder charge. Um, but the parole board ended up saying for that charge, he had to spend something like 235 years in prison, which was the longest sentence ever handed down to a Hawaii inmate. Um, and obviously there's, a or maybe anyone ever, no, I'm just kidding. it's possible. It's very long. The sentences were ordered to be run consecutively. Um, and it is important to know if you're wondering that Hawaii does not have the death penalty. So he received mm-hmm. the maximum punishment for first degree murder at the time. So like true life in prison. Yes. True life in prison. Yeah. Not, you will live out your days. Not Canada life in prison. No, not life. <laughs> it's 25 years. Maybe, if you're lucky. Yeah. The court also ordered uh, Byron to pay $500 in restitution and $70,000 to the Crime Victim Compensation Fund. $500 in restitution? Yep. Curious what that was, but okay. Ford can hear his wife Lorna said of the verdict, quote, No matter what happens to him, it does not bring my husband back. I pray that he never knows the joy of freedom in his lifetime don't think that's unfair no and i mean i went through the victims first in this case um intentionally because i wanted to make sure that everybody knew the the true tragedy of this case and who these people were but i mean these are people who had wives and children and had you know really long tenure at these companies were probably close to retirement and like living out there you know and so I really wanted to highlight that before we got into the case itself one of the jurors who was involved in the conviction of Byron uh, her name was Claire Nakayama Dodson said that Byron seemed quiet and unassuming during trial she said he talked very calmly there was no expression 
However, she said as the trial went on, it was clear that he not only had another side, but that he did know the difference between right and wrong. I was wondering if when people were actually sitting in a room watching him, if they would be like, oh, he was really kind of pathetic and blah, blah, blah. Or if they would be like, no, this guy is kind of a master manipulator in a way. Yeah, she said definitely as the trial went on that he had two sides to him and that it was really obvious that he knew that what he did was wrong. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Byron Yugasugi, of course, appealed his convictions. And in 2002, the state of Hawaii Supreme Court upheld the conviction. I'm not even going to go into the reasons why he appealed the convictions because it's kind of it's similar that we see all the time. It's like just throw anything at the wall to see what sticks. Um, But the, the Supreme Court basically was like, no, the jury was not improperly instructed. You did not have improper counsel. Like, no. It was fine. It was fine, yeah. In 2004, um, he considered fighting the conviction again based on the premise that he had inadequate representation in the first trial. However, they included that in the original appeal, and it was overturned. So that second appeal I don't think ever went through from what I could see. I hope not. In 2005, Xerox and the hospital that examined Yusugi settled a civil suit that was brought by the families of the shooting victims. Um, So the families sued both the hospital and Xerox, and they believed that both parties had failed to take preventative action based on what they said were clear signs of Byron's mental instability. So, I mean, remember, there had been years of, like, him threatening to do a mass shooting and things like that, and... You know, maybe people didn't take it seriously, but this happened, so. That's like one of those, like, I'm going to blow this place up. And, like, no one really takes it at face value. And then one day something happens and they were like, well, they did tell us, but you just don't really think it's. You kind of think it's like that over-exaggerated talk we have with ourselves. Yeah. Uh, Byron Yusugi was initially held at a facility in Mississippi due to inadequate accommodations for a prisoner in isolation. Um, so Halawa Correctional Facility, which is the state prison in Honolulu, did not have adequate accommodations for somebody who needed to be in isolation. And so he was held elsewhere. As of October 10th, 2017, he was incarcerated at the Saguero Correctional Center in Eloy, Arizona. Okay. Xerox uh, basically packed up and left the building after the shooting, and the facility was vacant until 2004 when the producers of the TV show Lost built a soundstage there to film indoor scenes. So it just sat empty, and then, yeah, Lost was like, we'll take it. Yeah. We see its potential. We can work with this. Yeah. Uh, And kind of, I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but at the time of his arrest, Byron was in possession of 17 guns, which were all registered to his name. He had had 25 total gun registrations dating back to his first in 1982. And after the shooting, the state legislator... The state legislature, sorry, 
passed a law that requires doctors to reveal information about the mental state of persons applying to buy guns. So the gun laws um, were actually changed in Hawaii because of this shooting. Good. Someone saw something happen. There was a correlation and said, you know what? It's not the person with mental health issues necessarily fault, but we can help. Yeah, that is pretty much it for this um, case. There was a couple of different cases to choose from. Hawaii actually doesn't have a lot of crime. It's considered to be fairly safe. Um, But there is this case and then another case that probably a lot of people are more familiar with because like crime junkie is covered in things like that called the honolulu strangler um this case is actually unsolved nobody knows who the serial killer is um but i had seen a lot of a lot of bigger shows cover the honolulu strangler so i decided to go a different direction um and just cover something that was a little i'm glad less known um but yeah that's yeah i didn't know anything about this yeah and it's tragic. And I mean, we all use Xerox machines. You know what I mean? Like, I've used yeah. them in work buildings and things like that. I use them every day. Yeah. So it was really interesting. I had never heard about this either. Obviously, inter- interesting in, like, a tragic, sad way. Um, and I think these people deserve to be remembered as well. So I'll go just a, one more run through of who the victims were before we end. Okay. That day, uh, seven lives were lost. 33-year-old Jason Belatico, 41-year-old Ford Kanahira, 50-year-old Ronald Kataoka, 54-year-old Ronald Kawame, 58-year-old Melvin Lee, 46-year-old Peter Mark, and 36-year-old John Sakamoto, who were all husbands and fathers and sons and had families and were lost tragically. normal, average, everyday men going to work to support their families. Yeah. But that's it. Well, thank you for covering that. Yeah. I enjoyed taking a little trip outside of Canada to hear a case. It was very interesting. I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's something a little bit different. We don't cover a lot of across-the-border cases anymore. But oh. um, I figured since I was across the border, I would share some true you crime inspired. from where I came <laughs> from or from where I was. Well, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think we have anything else really to say. And no. I mean, if you have a case suggestion, podcastbyproxy at gmail.com. Yeah. We're doing very minimal, like Facebook, Instagram, maybe threads. Look. On social media I need at podcastbyproxy. Catch up on the Instagram. So I'll get there. It's Girl, just, you've been busy been getting, busy. going into pre Mary mode. So just. It's just been busy. Yeah. Calm your tits. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, this is our main source for you. So. Yeah, if you want us at our best and our worst, come on here. (laughs) Yeah, you can follow us. Uh, I will get going on Instagram again soon at Podcast by Proxy. Like Katie said, send us a Gmail. Uh, Leave a five-star rating or review wherever you're listening is very, very helpful. And I did want to say thank you to the couple people who messaged me with lipstick ideas for my mother. Oh, my God, yes. I really appreciate you. Um, There was, like, more than one person who messaged me with ideas about where I can get a lipstick for my mom. And I I love you. Thank you. I appreciate thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And kiss, we. Because it's lipstick. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.
How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay.